Presenting The Art of Not Giving a Fuck with Garrett Dawn. Alright, hey everybody. Uh, we're back again with another Art of NGF podcast. And this time we have a very special guest, Mr. Matt Fury. Uh, so welcome to the show, Matt. Well, I am honored to be on it with you. All right, and I'm honored to have you on the show as well. Uh, so I heard about your stuff uh, way back when I was at a martial arts club called Northwest Martial Arts uh, in Oregon. And there was a book there called Combat Conditioning. And I noticed we were using a lot of the exercises in our warm-ups for uh, all kinds of martial arts stuff, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Jeet Kune Do and mixed martial arts and whatnot. And I think that was the first time I ever learned about working out without weights and without using a gym. Uh, so that really caught my attention and I was able to use it every single day uh, at my house. I bought combat abs. I think combat stretching around that same time. Uh, and I just loved the programs. Another thing I loved about them was that it was you generally in your living room or in a gym with a camera and putting out programs. So that inspired me to create courses online later on too. Uh, so it affected my life in many ways. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, how did you get started in all the, the fitness world and all this working out, especially without gyms and that kind of thing? Well, uh, that's a very good question. I, I was active in sports from a young age, swimming and wrestling. And always a ball in my hand outside, vacant lots, back when neighborhood kids would get together and parents didn't chaperone and helicopter, uh, <laughs> helicopter them. You'd just go out and play. I was always playing basketball or baseball or football. Um, and I got in competitive sports at age eight uh, with swimming in the summer and baseball and in the winter, a little bit of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Well, as I, as I, um, got to about age 12, 13, there was a guy at the swimming pool where I practiced who worked a concession stand and he was a collegiate basketball player. He looked at me one day as I'm at the concession stand munching on popcorn and drinking sodas and, and said, Fury, you know, you ought to work out with weights. And I replied, well, why is that? He says, because you're just about all fat. This was, this was my introduction to, let's call it physical culture, etc. Well, I didn't know anything else at the time, so I... Uh, went home. There was a plastic cement filled weight barbell set that I had, a Ted Williams Sears product. And uh, the only thing I knew about using weights or doing any kind of exercise other than swimming, you know, playing your sports, mm -hmm. was what you saw in the Olympics on television. It showed Olympic weightlifting, clean and jerk, snatch. And so what I did is I would load up the barbell, I would clean 
clean it to my chest, and then I'd press it overhead about 20 times. I'd let it down. I'd add some weight. I'd do 10 reps. I'd let it down. I'd do, add some more weight and continue on this way until I had maxed out. Mm-hmm. I did this three days a week. And in six weeks' time, nobody was asked, saying to me that you look just about all fat. In fact, the opposite was how much weight have you lost? Wow, you really look good. You got all these muscles. And I was surprised. I didn't really notice as much as everyone else had. Well, this then turned into, over time, not just uh, doing this kind of weight training, but also learning more about calisthenics and running and all sorts of training. Mm -hmm. I had the benefit of some other characters in my hometown who played college football or wrestled in college. They And another guy was a Golden Gloves boxer. All of these people who were about five to seven years older than me at the time would be at this facility in the evening called Recreation Center. I'd go there, I'd meet them, and I started to learn more and more. I also read a lot of books. At the time, there was no DVDs. There was barely even VCR or video tapes. Um, so you really, it was a lot of it was book learning and a lot of it was learning from people who already knew, who learned from someone. A lot of it was word of mouth. Well, anyway, throughout my high school, I did a combination of bodyweight exercises and weight training, as well as running and skipping rope. When I got into college, this continued. Meanwhile, all along, I had heard about this guy named Carl Gotch, mm-hmm. a professional wrestler who taught people a system of exercises that were all body weight calisthenics. Mm-hmm. I had heard that he got phenomenal results in conditioning, strength, flexibility, and so on, working with people and teaching them a body weight only approach. Uh, or I shouldn't say body weight only. He also used Indian clubs and maces and things, but but no weights, no dumbbells, no barbells, no machines, definitely no machines. Well, after co- I'm skipping around here, but I just I want to lay the framework here is that mm-hmm. I had I had an interest in body weight exercises from the time I got started with the barbell in my basement doing the clean and jerk. Well, in high school, I would do push ups. I'd do up to a thousand a day. I would do pull-ups. I would do handstands. I was walking on my hands across the across the uh, grass in our front lawn. All of this was part of my training as well. And I thought really nothing of it until after college. I, I ended up going to the University of Iowa as well as Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania on wrestling scholarship. And while I was there, it was mostly weight training, but then there was pull-ups, sit-ups, push-ups, jumping rope, a lot of sprints, a lot of stair running. I still had in the back of my mind, even though I'm in the finest wrestling programs in the country, I still have in the back of my mind, someday I got to meet this guy who has all of these, let's say, esoteric body weight conditioning exercises. Mm-hmm. 
and and that maybe weights isn't the way to go even though all of us are doing it maybe there's a better way where you don't even use weights it was always in the back of my mind after college i moved to california i started as a personal fitness trainer i had my own facility training high school athletes as well as adult men and women and I got involved in martial arts. Well, Chinese martial arts, you don't use weights usually. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it was all isometric exercises, body weight calisthenics, holding stances, learning um, breathing exercises that you, that you wouldn't normally do, and stretching. Well, I kept studying and studying and in 1996-97, I went to China as part of a team in Shuijiao Gong Fu. And at the tournament in China, I won. It was a world championship, and I won the gold medal. It was the first time an American had won a gold medal in China <laughs> against the Chinese, beating them at their own game. I came home from there, and one of my friends and customers who was the strength coach for the Cincinnati Bengals, he mentioned to me that I ought to reach out and meet this guy, Carl Gotch, whom I'd heard about. Well, he found the address for me. I wrote Carl a letter. He replied. The next thing you know, I take a trip down to Florida to interview him for a publication I was producing myself at the time called Grappling Arts International News Magazine. Well, when I met Carl, I spent about four days with him. He taught me these exercises and a whole lot more. I went back to California. I talked to my wife. We decided, you know, he's getting up in age. He's got bad hips. I better, we better move to Florida and learn from him while we can. We then, uh, about four or five months later, sold everything off, packed everything, moved to Florida. From that point on, I started learning from Carl for a couple of years, during which time he really worked with me, you know, on an almost daily basis, at least for the first year, uh, learning a lot, going into way more detail on catch wrestling, fighting, as well as this whole calisthenics routine. Mm -hmm. Well, this then turned into my book, Combat Conditioning. In that book, there was a lot of the body weight exercises I did while in college. There's, they're in there, as well as those I learned from my Chinese Kung Fu training were in there. And then those that I learned from Carl. The ones that I learned from Carl were the, what were referred to as the Royal Court. Mm -hmm. uh, there's Hindu squats, Hindu push-ups, and bridging. And they're different than other squats and push-ups and different than the way I was taught bridging as a young boy learning, learning to wrestle. Well, I put, I put all this information out in a book and then a set of videos, which became DVDs. And I really put it out because I just wanted to have a record of this is how I'm training. Mm -hmm. I didn't really 
I didn't know if anybody would even buy it. I'd published a number of books before that. None of them were huge successes. They made me money, but none of them were huge successes. So I went into this with a very modest, humble thinking that, well, I'll print 250 copies of this book. And I remember having breakfast with Carl and my wife at a Denny's in uh, Port Ritchie, Florida. He says to me, well, you know, maybe you ought to just start with 100. <laughs> <laughs> well, those 250 copies sold like so fast. Then I did another 250, still being very conservative. They, those sold quickly. Then I did 500. Then I'd get 1,000. Then a couple thousand. Then as many as ten and 20,000 copies wow. at a time. It just to this day, it's stunning to me that this happened. And it reminded me, it reminds me in telling you this of, of the Wayne Dyer line that I read in one of his books, one of his earlier books, I believe it was The Sky's the Limit, where he mentioned that when people who are no limit people, they're self-actualized and so on. When they get rich or they, they, they make a lot of money, it's almost always by accident. Hmm. They didn't necessarily intend it. But they may have intended to make a lot of money, but they didn't intend to do it the way it happened. The way it happened was accidental. And th that was truly the case with combat conditioning. I then had what we'd call a home run or a grand slam. So I started making more and more, and, and still to this day, I, I'm learning more and more about body weight training, about breathing, about martial arts, Qigong. It's a lifelong study. So that is uh, sort of a, a framework for your question to give you a history of me from age eight <laughs> to my mid-50s. Yeah. So when one of the things that struck me about combat conditioning uh, when I first started doing it, and I think it comes across even in the written instruction in the book, is that breathing uh, along with the movement, synchronizing the inhales and exhales with specific movements, uh, and that completely changed my life in some way. I think I, that you can apply that to, to every situation in which you're having awareness and using the body. There's, there's always some way that the breath can improve or enhance what's going on and bring more awareness to the movement and enhance things in many ways. So when, when did you, do you remember when you first, uh, when the breath got involved? Because I know for me in high school, there was no discussion of, maybe there was a little discussion about breathing, but it was not made important in, in any kind of, gym class or any capacity like that? Well, I didn't learn anything about it in high school either. I began to learn about the art of physical relaxation. I began to learn relaxation techniques at the University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my courses was actually called that. Oh. It was taught by a man. It was taught... Uh, there's one of those alarms going off on my phone, those amber alerts, you know, oh, you're still yeah, there. Aren't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, in that course, he didn't really 
specify the importance of the deep breathing, but it was there. That course planted the seed that years later when I moved to California and started training in martial arts helped me figure out some of the things I did in college that made me successful, but I wasn't really conscious of them. Mm -hmm. I began to get a greater understanding of the, the breath and the power and it plays and the role it plays around 1990. 1990-91. Up until that point, I was reading and researching and learning about it, but I didn't really understand it at a level that it that I was consciously useful, uh, I, that that it was consciously useful as well as that I could pass on to others and teach. Mm-hmm. Then. Um, I go to China regularly. We have we have a home over there, and I go over there to train as well. From the training I've gotten in China on a yearly basis, the the knowledge of the of the deep breathing has gone off the charts. The diff, there, and you might think, well, what's the what's the big difference? If you're doing a bench press, you inhale on the way down and you exhale on the way up. So there is breathing involved in all physical endeavors, of course. But the way I've learned it from martial arts training is different because it incorporates the imagination and incorporates um, a, a different type of breathing, which is called reverse breathing. With Carl Gotch, he didn't specify that this type of breathing you're doing when you do the Hindu squats and Hindu push-ups is reverse breathing. He, but he did tell me to focus on the breathing, to make it primary and the movement secondary. Now, that's not misleading. This doesn't, or, or I, I want to be clear here that when the movement is secondary, this doesn't mean that just do it any old sloppy way and it, it doesn't matter. Once you've learned the correct technical aspects of it, you then understand that the movement itself is mostly on autopilot. It's time then to focus on your inhale and your exhale primarily, which allows you to push through the pain that you might be feeling. (laughs) Lactic acid starts building up in your thighs. If you focus on your breathing, you can go to a, a whole other level, a different set point. Plus, it can bring in some of these seemingly mystical experiences where when you are now out competing with somebody or practicing with somebody, you start doing things that you never thought you could do before. Mm-hmm. And you're because you're relaxed and you're in flow. It's similar to you remember the Super Bowl where the Giants beat the Patriots. I don't know if you watched that game, but Eli Manning was surrounded by about four or five different uh, defensive players for the for the uh, Patriots, and one had a hold of his jersey, and somehow he escaped 
and he launches this bomb down the field. The player, the receiver for the Giants jumps up, catches it, and is getting tackled as he catches it, but somehow holds the football in his hands and presses it against his helmet, the top of his helmet, as he's getting tackled and holds on to the ball. <laughs> I mean, how the hell did this happen? How, how did the quarterback get away, and how do you make a catch such as that? I mean, I've never seen it ever before in my life. Well, that's the sort of thing that happens on a more regular basis, not something Super Bowl play such as this, but uncanny, unpredictable, seemingly from out of nowhere moves and counters and a series of flow that you wouldn't have ever consciously thought of. Mm -hmm. So when you focus on the breathing the way I've, I've been taught, it takes you out of the thinking mind. One of the biggest problems that people have today is they overthink. If, if they, they're competing in grappling or basketball, whatever it is, there's this tendency to think too much. Now, as, as powerful as thought is, as powerful as the mind is, it also can be a deterrent. It can be a break. But when you focus on the breathing, the breathing clears the mind. It puts you into the zone. And when you're in the zone, that's when you can't even explain how you did something. I don't know. I just did it. <laughs> but when you're thinking, especially when you're overthinking, most of the overthinking is not productive. It's interference. Uh, so that's the that's the whole point is that when when somebody's doing standard weight training, they're breathing, but they don't really understand that your breath is your power. But then you start getting into the Olympic weightlifters, they understand that there's a connection to it. <laughs> when you get into uh, Tai Chi and some of the other martial arts, then you really understand. And the boxers, they do too. I mean, you take the American martial arts of, of uh, boxing and kickboxing. They understand that the breathing is important. Oh, yeah. They just don't, they don't, uh, they don't train it esoterically, let's say. Mm -hmm. But uh, I would say that more and more are these days. There's so much more information out today on, on the power of deep breathing that it, it's off the charts, but for me, I would say to wrap that this this point up is that it's not only deep breathing. It's deep breathing mixed with good posture or a good stance or a good position, as well as the imagination. And, and when you have all of those together, it's pretty astounding some of the things that you can pull off some of the things that you can do seemingly effortlessly that before were a struggle. It lends itself not just to sports and martial arts or athletics, but to anything. Once you learn this type of thing, then let's say you wanted to learn how to play an instrument or you wanted to learn how to paint or sing or tap dance, or you wanted to learn how to draw 
you can learn all of it with far greater ease because we sti when we stifle our breath, which is what most people are doing on a regular basis without knowing it, when we stifle our breath, we stifle our ability to learn. And, and we get out of flow. When we're, when we're not in flow, it's hard to learn. And this is where this is where the relaxation techniques come in. The relaxation technique isn't just looking at your muscle and say, all right, relax. That's that's more of a self-hypnosis type of thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's effective and it works. But now we're not just relaxing. We're breathing into what we're relaxing. We're energizing the area we're relaxing. Th this gets into the definition of a professional is someone who makes his job look easy. Mm -hmm. yeah. How the hell do you stand up there and throw one strike after another at 95 miles an hour? Mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't even look as though you're doing anything and the ball's coming in at 95. Huh? The guy with the superior golf swing, the golf pro, just bang, 300 yards. <laughs> How do you do it? I mean, your swing looks so effortless. You then grab the club and you try to muscle it and hit the ball as hard as you can, and it goes 30 feet. <laughs> and not in a straight line either. This, this is where it, part of the relaxation, part of the breathing, part of the imagination is not only to move the conscious mind out of the way and eliminate overthinking, but also to eliminate uh, trying harder than necessary. This is why you'll, you'll hear people who really understand the brain is that you don't try. The very word try implies effort. Well, don't I need to try? Yes, you do, but we're talking about over trying. You try without trying. You do without attempting to do. You just you let your body do it. And it's a difficult concept at first for people to understand, but if they play a sport or they're involved in a martial art, they then begin to understand this, that the harder I try to punch somebody, the less impact. But if I relax my body and get in sync with my breath and punch, and without trying to hit as hard as I can, just letting my body do what it can do, the punch is at least double, if not triple or quadruple the force. The same is true hitting a baseball, hitting a tennis ball, chopping wood, and so on. This is why I say there's a carryover into everything in your life, not just sports or martial arts. Yeah, something people don't, don't uh, remember maybe at first is that the everything – that they've ever experienced in life has the body in common. So, so that's, it's a, it's a massive part of, of every experience in life. And uh, I think somehow drifts out of awareness for people, uh, which brings up an interesting point about the imagination. Uh, part of what I do is something called imagination training. Uh, but it seems folks, at least that come my way need to have an experience with the body and the breathing first, uh, maybe it's not necessary, but it seems that it makes it much easier to then begin to use 
and uh, become effective at using the imagination on a number of levels, but that they need first to break a, apart some of the gross amounts of tension and get back into breathing to even calm down enough to witness what's going on in the mind, uh, let alone begin to actually operate in that. I agree. A mind-only approach rarely works. If you want to gain control of the mind, you do it through the body because the mind and the body are connected. So it's somewhat foolish to think you just do it with the mind because your mind is everywhere. <laughs> you know? It's not, your brain is your brain, but your brain's also connected to your central nervous system, which is connected to your uh, peripheral nervous system, which is connected to every cell in your body, every nerve in your body. It's all there, but the mind is still more than that. And, but, but you reach the mind, and you, you can even say reach the brain and nervous systems by using the body. So you, you say somebody has fear, a, you know, a massive amount of fear or phobia. Well, you can work on that with a mind-only approach. But it's the doing, you know, do the thing you fear and the death of fear is certain, you see. So it's not use your mind to overcome the fear and the death of fear. No, do the thing you fear. Mm -hmm. So how did you end up discovering or getting, in, getting involved in all the imagination stuff? I know a little of the story about the Maxwell Maltz book, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, um, but not too much. And I, so I'm curious, when did, when did that become part of your functioning and how did that work for you? Well, at the University of Iowa, my freshman year, we had a hypnotist came in and worked with us, worked with the team, did a full day workshop. Then he made audio cassette tapes for people who wanted them. Every day before I went to practice, I would listen to the tape and go through the exercises. I got so jazzed about it and uh, excited to learn more that while I got my degree in speech communications, I was actually getting an unwritten, undocumented degree in, let's say, sports psychology. Hmm. I was reading... I was going to the bookstore, buying books two, three at a time, coming home and reading them. And I got no credit for that. <laughs> but I literally was reading, I probably can accurately say, I read more books having to do with the mind and the power of the imagination while I was in college than I read in all my other subjects. It's a big fascination of mine. Yeah. Well, when I got out of college and started in my own business at age 23, I knew so much about motivation, inspiration, and so on, that the adults, as well as the high schoolers who trained with me, could sit and take out a notebook and hear one aphorism or one great quote after another. I just 
wing this stuff all day. Well, one of my clients, he was 57 years of age at the time. He, uh, he and I used to get into discussion when I would come, when I would quote somebody or repeat something that I felt was profound and moving toward me, he would have something he could come back with immediately. Well, during one of our training sessions, he asked me if I'd ever read Psycho-Cybernetics. <laughs> Oddly enough, I hadn't. Somehow or other, all those trips to the bookstore, I don't ever even recall seeing it. Well, Jack told me, well, it's pretty much the Bible of self-development. He gave me some details about it, written by a plastic surgeon, Dr. Maxwell Maltz, how he discovered that a person has a self-image, that somebody who's in sales, for example, sees himself or herself only making X number of dollars a year, even if they change territories and go to a territory where nobody buys, they'll still make about the same amount. Let's say they start off the year with a bang and the first three months they make 90% of what they did the year before. The brain sort of shuts down and for the remaining nine months, they only make about what they did. Uh, they, they only do enough to reach the same level that they would be if they were uh, making the same amount of money on a steady basis the whole 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then he talked about inner scars and, and eradicating internal scars, that his job as a plastic surgeon was to fix noses and hair lips and ears and get rid of scars on the face from auto accidents or fights in bars or whatever it was. Well, he, there was a certain percentage of people who, even after the surgery, they were still unhappy, and he couldn't understand it. Look in the mirror. Don't you see the difference? Well, I can see the difference, but I don't feel any different. This caused him then to delve more deeply into the psychology that being a plastic surgeon wasn't just something physical that there was actually something psychological that was taking place. Uh, some, you know, the, the majority of people, let's say, they re regained confidence or courage or found confidence and courage that they felt they never had before. But then there was some, there was a fraction of these people who got the surgery and they're still miserable. They thought the surgery was going to make them feel whole, was going to make them feel good about themselves, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. So what to do? That's when he discovered his self-image. Um, and through his study of that, he was then able to help people understand how powerful that your memory of previous events, whether they were positive or negative, has a huge influence over how you see yourself in the future, as, as well as in the now. He discovered that the memory and the imagination are inextricably linked. If, you, if, if every day all you do is remember 
the worst that's ever happened to you, it's as though you're magnetizing more of that. And he talked about people who are accident prone or uh, injury prone uh, uh, than people who are success prone, people who are failure prone versus others who seem to have a golden ticket through life. Everything they do turns to gold. And somebody else, everything he attempts to do turns to crap. How how do you explain this? Well, there's this composite mental picture people have in the in the mind, the self-image, which is a blueprint of life's coming attractions. It's a blueprint for how you see yourself and where you're going in life. Well, when I went down to the bookstore and bought this book after talking to Jack, he says it's the Bible of self-development. Well, I better go get this. Mm-hmm. I went and I bought it, and it was huge in changing my life because for, for a couple of reasons, both of which are pretty big. Number one was I was a national champion as a junior in college. As a senior, I didn't win it. I took fifth. And I guess what I only focused on, I focused on the loss. I focused on how I didn't win it twice and, uh, and how I viewed myself as a failure. Here I'm a national champion, not many walking around, but I had this feeling of having failed because my senior year was a disappointment. That was one big one. The other one, so I started seeing myself and reliving my victories, and my energy completely shifted and changed. I stopped feeling as though I was a failure because I was remembering my victories. Well, the other thing happened to be that when I was in college, after my freshman year, I got involved in a fracas in a bar and ended up um, on the... uh, in the operate in the uh, emergency room later that night, and getting glass pulled out of my eyes, out of my face, getting all stitched up. So I understood the difference between internal scar and external scar. Or did I? I had external scars from this event, but did I also have internal scars? And yes, I did. Now, could I leave the external scars where they are and begin to feel good about myself? Found out, yes, I could. Now, over time, just using the principles in this book, uh, my life has changed in many, many ways. But what Maltz pointed out is that about 0.5, based on the era, <laughs> 1950, 1960. And he passed away in mid-1970. So let's think of that era. Prior to silicone implants, prior to penile enlargement, prior to uh, all the somewhat crazy cosmetic surgeries that physicians will do today. Back then, we were talking about your nose is too big, or your nose got broken 17 times playing hockey, well, let me fix it. Or your ears are too big, you're born that way, or something got disfigured, 
you, you were born with a hair lip, you had a scar from an accident. All right, come on in and I'll fix this. So it was, it was um, a profession where it wasn't just vanity. Yeah. <laughs> so much of it today, we could say eh, it's vanity. But ba based on that era, what Malt said is about 0.5% of the population actually could use some plastic surgery and because of an accident or the, a, a defect of some sort that you were born with. But the other 99.5% who don't have external scars have internal ones. Mm. This broadened his <laughs> this broadened his potential customer base, I believe. <laughs> you went, <laughs> so now he he's taking care of all the people who have something external that they want eradicated. But on the other hand, we've got a massive amount of people out there who have internal scars. Now let me help people with this. This is when his his practice took a turn in that people would come to him wanting surgery and he would sit and talk with the person and some of the people ended up not getting it because they realized that it was an internal job that needed to be done. Mm. Well, Maltz was all about imagination, the power of imagination. And the Chinese martial arts and all that that I've studied, it's all about the power of imagination as well. But it's also intention. And what I've come to, to realize and to teach people is that Imagination without intention doesn't have any power. Intention without imagination doesn't have any power either. The two are really the same word, just incomplete. We're really getting at the same essence, the same core, but we're using two words to do it. But in Chinese martial arts, when the concept of E is defined, they say intention, mm. but a good teacher will explain to you that intention and imagination separate, but the same. It's this, it, it's the akin to the character. They say the, the same character in Chinese for crisis is the same one for opportunity. Well, the character for imagination is different than the character for intention. But the two are joined together at the hip. Mm -hmm. One doesn't do you any good without the other. Yeah, it's uh, something else fascinating about the imagination that I noticed is that regardless of whether or not you get the thing that's being imagined or whether or not a worry becomes true, you, you actually get the experience of the thing in the here and now. So that works against people if they're unaware in that they can be experiencing all kinds of tragedy, regret, and future catastrophe, and they're feeling it. They're actually making their muscles tense against that future uh, feared event or regrets or guilt or shame or any of this. Uh, if that's operating in the imagination, then it's operating in the body to some degree. Well, and based on neuroscience... If you go to a movie 
where there's a lot of bloodshed that your brain is recording everything that each character is doing in the movie as though you did it yourself. (laughs) Think of that. Think of that when people sit around and play violent video games all day. Then wonder why they can't relax when it's time to take a test or it's time to perform in a game. But you spend eight hours a day playing violent video games. Your nervous system is rattled. Now you're going to relax when it's time to return somebody's 130-mile serve, 130-mile-per-hour serve. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing how it's linked up. And uh, in terms of even seeing opportunities uh, in your own life, I I think when there's a lot of tension, no breathing going on, and then thinking of yourself as a loser – there's no way to even recognize and it's not that i don't know that imagination creates new opportunities but it might as well in that it makes it possible for you to even respond to life as though an opportunity is present Uh, and in that mindset in that approach uh, there's opportunities everywhere there's always something to be done or something that you can do to get closer to what you want at the same time as experiencing what you want already in the imagination, which is a fascinating aspect of it. And that's the whole idea is that the more you picture something with feeling, that's the key. It's not just picturing something, picturing it with feeling. The greater the likelihood that you can make it come about. It doesn't guarantee it, (laughs) but everything starts in the imagination. You could even say that everything is an imagination. Mm -hmm. Because if you and I are looking at a forest of trees, you're not going to see them the same way I'm seeing them. If we had 100 people there, and you, you had to write about what you saw or what you experienced, or you had to draw what it was, <laughs> you wouldn't have a single person who replicated what another person put on paper. None would be the same. So we can gather from that that everything is either an imagination or a hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of the people hallucinated that they saw something else, not the forest. They were looking at uh, a waterfall or they were seeing clouds, something that we could say wasn't even there. Yeah. But to them it was. Have you ever had a dream wherein shortly after falling asleep you feel that or you have the sense of being in a place that doesn't exist on the physical plane that, or it's in another dimension or one of my favorite ways of explaining it is having a dream and while having it or upon waking up from it, you say to yourself, now I know where J.R.R. Tolkien got all this crazy stuff, (laughs) you know, 
Yeah. Now I know why he wrote read the wrote the Hobbit. I I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I've had those kind of dreams, and these are places. Yeah, yeah. Magical places or strange places, underground caves, whatever it is, or or ancient cities or civilizations. What the hell is going on here? But uh, do these places actually exist? Well, one out of those hundred people who's looking at the same forest we're looking at, maybe he's, he's seeing a, an underground caves. Maybe he's seeing all sorts of things going on in another dimension that we're not seeing. And that's that's what gives you your Tolkien. That's what gives you this novelist who's writing the most bizarre, insane things that people are lapping up for. You know, how long ago was were those books written? They're, they're classics. Yeah. They're classics. They're, you take the book Moby Dick, about 900 pages of pure fantasy. <laughs> yeah, it's excellent stuff. And... Uh... Another fascinating aspect of the imagination is that you it, it makes it possible to uh, you can have fun no matter what's going on. Something another aspect of it I noticed, and that seems to get people up out of their ruts, is that you can have instant results in the imagination once you get used to it, where you can actually make every experience alive fun, even something that's painful or upsetting. You can turn it around. Mm -hmm. You can reframe it. You can you can minimize it. You, you think of all the things we do with a computer. You have something painful. What if you just viewed it as a window on your monitor and minimize it, mm -hmm. or close it and open a different window? Your your mind can only hold one big thought at a time. So if you're having a fearful, worrisome thought and you change to a thought of what you actually want instead of what you don't want, the feeling inside your brain and body instantly shifts. So if, if somebody's driving on the highway and has a fearful thought about an accident, but then pictures herself at home with her family having dinner, the fearful thought is now gone, along with the, the negative chemicals that your brain actually produces when you're in that state of fear. You start picturing having a grand old time with your family at the dinner table or out at a restaurant. Now, all of a sudden, you have very different pharmaceuticals that your own brain has created. Um, and, and all you did is shift pictures. So now something that Dr. Maltz taught was if you can remember worry or tie your shoe, you can succeed with psychocybernetics. <laughs> always stuns me how many people overlook that sentence. And maybe, maybe they don't think it's that profound. I'm not sure. But all I know is when I read it, I never forgot it. And it's actually very deep what he's saying. If you can remember, 
because we we define ourselves of where we are now or where we can go in the future by our memories. Mm-hmm. We say, well, this always happens to me. You, you saw the, did you see the Serena Williams um, match at the U.S. Open? I think it was in August where she lost to the, the Japanese girl. I, I guess she's, she's part Japanese, part um part uh part Japanese part not Jamaican maybe Haitian or something and and Serena Williams is having a tough time and it's the finals and she gets she gets penalized by the uh the judge and then she gets penalized the second time she then approaches the judge and says this always happens to me Every year I come here. Now, I'm not making a judgment whether she was, you know, right or wrong or had a good point or not. I don't care about that. But this always happens to me every time I come here. (laughs) See? (laughs) So what she's telling you is that her mind records every negative event that ever happens there. And is almost expecting it, mm-hmm. almost expecting it to happen. The shit's going to hit the fan. I know it. I just know it's going to happen. And the same thing happens, and I'm a big baseball fan, so you'll see the same thing will happen with with a pitcher who's really, really good when he, when he uh, pitches, let's say, in Boston. But when he goes into Yankee Stadium, he gets his ass kicked. Every time he can beat, beat every team in baseball, can win the Cy Young, but he can't beat the Yankees. Or West Coast, you have the dominant pitchers for the Los Angeles Dodgers, for example, or the, or the San Francisco for, uh, Giants. But then when they go to Colorado, they get their asses kicked every year. They might have, they might have a two-point O-E-R-A, everywhere else. But in that specific ballpark, they have a seven-point-something ERA. And and every year before they go there, the reporters remind them of this. <laughs> so it's not just their memory. Yeah. It's the reporters' memories, and they're keeping stats on all this. Well, what could happen is, let's say Serena Williams is worried that the same thing's going to happen in 2019. Because it happened in 2018. It happened in this year. She starts rattling off all the years that the judges were either picking on her or the or some bad call was made or whatever. Again, not making a judgment whether she's correct or not. I'm just saying, what if she is worried about this going into the next year's tournament? So this is where you remember, worry, or tie your shoe. So Maltz talked about what he called positive worry. That's a refrain in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And what would be the verbiage for that kind of a refrain? Serena could be saying, I'm so worried that this year, 
when I go to the U.S. Open, the judges are going to be totally fair and above board with me. I'm so worried that this year when I go into the U.S. Open, every game I play is magical. I'm so worried that I'm going to have the best U.S. Open tournament of my life. <laughs> so it starts with the I'm worried, but what comes after it is actually a positive. This is a, a little mind trick that you can do to uh, change what you're picturing. And to, n and to not worry about worrying. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody gets, somebody gets nervous, it's bad enough. But now the person's nervous about whether he's going to get nervous. Yeah. Or he has anxiety about whether or not he's going to get anxious. <laughs> right, completely lost See, to that point. Yeah. Yes. So this is this is a way to effectively combat worry by using the same words, but changing what comes after it. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing technique uh, that can be used immediately. So we're coming up on about an hour here. There's a few other things I wanted to mention, but. Um, we can set some of them aside for another time. But I wanted to ask you, how does a how would a person who's listening get started with all this stuff? I mean, if they're finding themselves in worry or upset or they want to start making more money or they want to get, you know, get things moving on the body level, uh, get into some kind of working out routines. Like where, where does a person get started with the body, the breath, the imagination, all this? Very good question. Well, there's two ways we can approach it. If, if people are more interested in the benefits of being physically fit and, uh, and, and the breathing aspects that go with it, they could uh, go to my membership site that I have for this specifically. It's thefuryfaithful.com. So delete, I shouldn't have said the. Uh, it's furyfaithful.com. Fury is spelled F-U-R-E-Y, faithful.com. And uh, the, every month I put up different things, and there's already a couple semi-truck loads worth of uh, information on there that uh, you have access to that helps you with the Hindu squats and Hindu push-ups, the breathing, and so on. For the psycho-cybernetics, theater of the mind approach and so on. That's a best-selling program I did with Nightingale Conan. You can go to Psycho. <laughs> I kind of feel strange saying it and pausing. Psycho-cybernetics.com. Psycho meaning the mind, P-S-Y-C-H-O-cybernetics.com. Uh, and you'll see not only the best-selling book, that came out in 1960 and sold over 35 million copies and counting worldwide, but also links to the audio program, um, including Theater of the Mind as well as Psycho Cybernetics. Uh, I send out I send out emails frequently to both sites. You can uh, get on the email list as well, so that you're being notified when I have new product releases or or just uh, want to read my thoughts for the day on some subject that uh, is of interest. 
which is usually yourself. <laughs> but uh, those, those are the two places that people can get access to virtually everything I do. Great. Yeah, I, I joined the Fury Faithful, and I really recommend it. I think it's a great uh, series of different experiments and exercises. I've been using that neck uh, qigong uh, on a daily basis, and it's amazing how much has shifted around. Uh, you wouldn't think <laughs> it really it is. Be, it really is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you got to figure what's above your neck, <laughs> your brain, <laughs> yeah. your brain. So not only is it important to train your neck for your neck's sake, but your brain is the supercomputer that creates the pharmaceuticals to make you feel good or that make you feel horrible. When you do the neck qigong and with the slow breathing sequences that go with it, these exercises, they clear that mind. Mm -hmm. They clear all the debris, all the cobwebs, it just eliminates them and you start feeling good for no reason at all. Yeah, it's amazing and, stuff. Yes, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're uh, following that and using it because it, it really is huge. Yeah, it's amazing. And did notice how, uh, well, there's somewhat something where I was moving my head to the right and I could feel it in my neck. And I think some thought went through my head before I found those exercises that was like, well, I guess it's just going to be this way now. And I don't like that thought. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Yeah, and I've learned that it's that's not true if I actually do something about it. But doing the exercises, I kept thinking, oh, this isn't cracking anything. There's nothing big going on. How could this actually change it? And then I was thinking of the part where you said uh, you you say if you're feeling any pain or tension, to be saying just let it go, just let it go, let it go, let it go, and around. And then sure enough, a few days into it, and suddenly that impingement was gone. There's just nothing there. I don't feel it anymore at all. And it wasn't that there was a moment when it disappeared or that it cracked and went right. It was just that I don't know when it went away. Sometime through doing the exercises, breathing, taking the time to observe what happened, and before I knew it, it was just gone. The neck thing was uh, neck moving properly, and uh, reminded of, of the power of using the body for even getting rid of things that you wouldn't guess are in the way. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, you just know how to move the body in a certain way and combine it with breath work and the thought of you know let it go, as you said, and some seemingly miraculous things can happen. So. Well, that is awesome. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah, thanks a lot. Man. And thanks as well for coming on the show. I think people get a lot out of this. And it's been really cool talking to you. Well, I appreciate you interviewing me. And uh, let's do it again if you're interested. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So I'll be in touch. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon, Matt. Thanks again. All right. You're welcome. All right. Take care.